0: Hey, hey, good morning, Hope Covenants. Good morning. Hey, Paul's on top of it because first service was a little weak on that. Thanks, Paul. You're you're getting them going here. Hey, thanks for putting up with me. Uh, Next week you'll get a break, and Yvonne is going to be speaking, the lovely and talented Yvonne, which is going to be awesome. Um, I'm going to have to listen to the recording because I'll be speaking at a men's retreat in Montana. So if you think of me this week, please pray. Uh, for that because those events are fun, but they are also um, feel like a battle sometimes in a, in a way to kind of fight for the hearts of the, the men who are showing up is the sense that we have. So uh, please be praying for that. Um, I am really grateful, again, to be able to be here and love to get back into the rhythm of, of preaching regularly. And one of the things that I know about me when I speak or teach is that I really have to kind of speak from where I think the Holy Spirit is taking us in the uh, any given moment like sometimes we lay out a sermon series and it just makes sense to keep going on it which is really fun and good and, and helpful for by the way the rest of the team who don't have to wait till the last second till i figure out what i'm going to say um, um, and then sometimes as we pray and discern uh kind of go i think that this is where god might be speaking or what he wants to say to the heart of our community here at hope or or, or gives us a sense of where we want to go uh, next, And so, I'm learning to try and and trust God in that and to follow Jesus there. So, all that to say is this, uh, we've been in the series on Acts, and, and this Sunday is one of those kind of follow the, the wild goose Sundays. Um, uh, you know, the Irish Celtic early Christians used to call the Holy Spirit, by the way, here's the origin of the wild goose chase, um, they used to call the Holy Spirit the wild goose was how they referred to the Holy Spirit, hence the origins of the phrase a wild goose chase because we don't always know exactly where the Holy Spirit's taken us, but we trust, we lean in, we, you know, hang on, sometimes we buckle up, right? 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 <laughs> Do we believe in the Holy Spirit here? i just just checking. Okay, okay, I'm new still, so I didn't know for sure, you know, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just making sure. Okay, okay, good, 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 making sure I wasn't getting in trouble here. So anyway, we've been in this series on the book of Acts for a while Few months now, and last week, if you were with us, we were in chapter 15 and unpacked the story there of these outsiders who were starting to follow Jesus. And if you were with us, you'll remember how in the early church, most of the first followers of, of Jesus uh, were, were Jewish in their background. Um, and then the non Jews, the, the Gentiles, they were definitely the outsiders in that particular religious culture, and, and they weren't just outsiders. We looked at how they were rejected by many of the insiders. Like, they didn't fit, they didn't belong, they were out of place, they didn't know what they were doing when they tried to come to church and join the church, and the overall religious posture towards those outsiders was No. No, you don't fit. No, you don't belong. No, you're not one of us. And our posture towards you outsiders is no. And if you want to fit in, if you even want to be saved, you're going to have to jump through our hoops, embrace all the customs, uh, get circumcised, follow the Mosaic law, the ritual, and do the dance. And until you get that down, don't even think to begin uh, that you belong here. And then in Acts 15, where we went to into that situation, the leaders of the early church, they stand up to counter that message, to, 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 to welcome the outsiders, to affirm them, to offer this giant, yes, yes, you fit, yes, you belong, yes, you are one of us. God makes no distinction between us and them. In fact, there is no us and them. Yes. And the question posed to us, which I first heard from my friend and pastor, Dave Johnson, was this. How big would the yes have to be to counter a no that you've heard all your life, right? Because they had heard this giant no all their life. So how big would the yes have to be? And then at the end of the message, I asked us to consider in our context, how big would our yes need to be in order to counter the no the outsiders in our world have heard all their life? Like how far would we need to go in order to extend to them the love of Jesus and the amazing grace of God? And if you were with us, I asked you to take a card that we had left out there and on one side write down the name of a group of folks that were outsiders and then on the other side a person's name, an individual name, and to carry that with you this week. So pull out your cards and we're going to all read those out loud now. Just kidding, just kidding. Ooh, that wasn't that funny. I'm not that funny. Okay, well, let's tell the truth here. All right. Um, but, but um, so anyway, that's where we were coming off the tail end of that. Um, I'm driving in my uh, truck a few days ago and, and trying to sense where are we supposed to go? Are we supposed to keep preaching through Acts? What are we supposed to do? Paul's got this great sermon to wrap the thing up that, that maybe in a couple weeks he'll, he'll um, have for us. But um, I was just kind of figuring out, you know. Um, and there were a couple of parables that surfaced in my heart. And, and part of this was that the church leaders in that day that stood up, one of them was James. And James was kind of a, you know, pretty strict sort of dude. And, and some people even believe that he kind of l- learned from the Pharisees of the Jewish faith. So he was more toward that. So the Pharisees probably thought he was going to side with them and be all rigid. And he didn't. He's the leader of the church at the time that stands up and says, yes. And I was thinking, where where did these guys learn this? And of course, you know, James is one of the 12 disciples, right, right, yeah, he's one of the 12, right? And then so they learned this from Jesus, and I started thinking about how Jesus modeled this, this yes, Um, and, and some stories that Jesus told to paint the picture, to show how big the yes would have to be to counter a no that someone has heard all their life. So that's what we're doing. Uh, Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. It will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. We're going to read from Luke 15. There's three stories. We're going to read two of them and summarize the third because it's a long chapter. Luke 15, uh, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in that same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose, a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, "'Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin.'" In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. And that's where we'll stop. Um, And I'll summarize that one. This story, Jesus, many of you have probably heard this story that we often call the prodigal son. And I love to tell that story. I mean, it's a beautiful story. There's a younger son who gets rebellious and he takes his share of the inheritance he moves away and he blows the whole thing he ends up feeding pigs and realizes what have I done and he comes to his senses and he comes back home hoping that his father might maybe let him come back and he is shocked because the father not only lets him come back but he runs toward him and he experiences this love of the father that he never had understood and usually what happens is you know We skip these first two stories that I just read because, you know, we preachers, we want to get to that home run hitter, the prodigal son, right? Uh, And honestly, I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories. That is my favorite stories. I love it Um, because it is. It's this wonderful story. It's a story of God, right? A a wayward son and a loving father, a waiting father. But according to Jesus in this chapter here, God's not just a waiting father. He's also like a desperate mother who, having lost a coin, lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. But it's not coins that God cares about. God cares about people. We have a God who moves heaven and earth to find people. And when he does, he rejoices. (laughs) He rejoices like, like, like a shepherd, like a shepherd Because God is also like a shepherd who had a sheep that wandered off, and when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, carries it all the way home. Three stories that we might be familiar with. They describe who God is and what he's like. They even tend to sound like cute little bedtime stories to tell to our kids, right? But there is more going on here in these parables than simply that, than simply a nice little lamb, or a coin that gets lost, or a rebellious kid that, you know, wandered off. Because behind the scenes of Jesus' life, in these parables, while Jesus is telling these stories, a storm was brewing. Tensions were rising. Suspicions were growing about Jesus. And instead of playing nice to pacify his critics, Jesus goes and tells these stories in front of the Pharisees and uh, the sinners at the same time, (laughs) which made things worse, like more tense. Like, these aren't sweet little bedtime stories that we tell our kids about a coin that got lost and a sheep that wandered away. Um... No, no, no. More is going on than that. Look back at verse 1. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See Jesus already has this track record of hanging out with people that the religious crowd is unhappy with. People that they have that no posture toward. Earlier in Luke, we hear them complain, Jesus doesn't just preach at the sinners. The real problem is that Jesus accepts these people. It's like he's saying yes to these rejects, these these sinners, and he eats with them, which to us we're like, whatever, big deal. But in that culture back then, to eat with someone meant that you treated them as an equal. In that culture, you didn't extend table fellowship to someone un- unless you accepted them as friends. And apparently, Jesus does this before they get their act cleaned up. And that was also a real problem in the eyes of the religious elite It irritated them that Jesus acted this way. And and their complaint would have been, hey, listen, if Jesus was really the son of God, he would know what kind of people were around him and he wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. And not only is he touching them, he's welcoming them and he's eating with them. (laughs) See, because Jesus was building... A community, a faith-based community, where those who had been on the outside were now on the inside, and it was making the Pharisees furious. I mean, these Pharisees, the religious elite back then, they spent a lot of energy on their rules in order to kind of build this wall between them and the very people to whom they were supposed to offer faith and hope. But Jesus was busy breaking those walls down. And that's the context in which Jesus tells these stories, which also gives these three stories a little bit more of an edge. Like, they're not random little feel-good lost and found stories about a cute little lamb or a cold coin that rolled away or a rebellious kid. This is actually, these stories are an explanation of why Jesus does what he does. It's about his yes. It's about his turning outsiders into insiders. See, because there's something more going on here. Like the Pharisees didn't get it. But God is the kind of God who actually cares about lost sheep, lost coins, lost kids, which is precisely what Jesus is getting at like, 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 here's a question that Jesus is asking the religious elite through these stories. I could hear Jesus saying, if God is the kind of God that cares about and relentlessly pursues lost sheep, lost kids, lost coins, then Pharisees, religious leaders, why don't you? I mean, Jesus, because, you know, he's a rabbi and grew up in the culture, he could even understand why they are mad about what he does. I mean, he could say, you know, listen, guys, I understand why you're mad and angry, why you're grumbling and confused, but, but I'm confused, too, as to why you don't receive sinners. So here's all the tension, and Jesus starts by asking a question, good rabbi here. And he points the question, really, at the religious elite. Verse 4, suppose one of you has a a hundred sheep and, and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? He's saying, like, right? Like, who wouldn't do that? Wouldn't anyone do that? So on one level here, Jesus is explaining himself. Why he eats with sinners and tax collectors, he's saying, because, guys, listen, they're like lost sheep, and who wouldn't do that? Why wouldn't you go after lost sheep? He even says, who among you, what man among you, right, wouldn't do such a thing. And don't you wish that just even after the first story, right, that the, the religious elite would, would just say, oh, oh, they'd hear the story and the lights would come on, right? Oh, I see. Okay, Jesus, now that you explain it that way, it makes total sense. Now we understand, Jesus, why you do this thing that disgusts us, you know, eating with and befriending these outsiders, Again, that would be really nice if they actually said that, Um, but it's not happening. That ain't happening. And Jesus is actually being real sarcastic here. This is a huge confrontation on them. See, in real life, back then in Jesus' day, shepherds were despised. They were despised. Ken Bailey's a, a New Testament scholar. He was a missionary to the Middle East and lived there for quite a long time. Um, he writes great stuff on the uh, parables, and, and he points out that most people who even had sheep back then, most people only had three or four or five sheep, right? If you had sheep. So when Jesus says, how many? A hundred? A hundred sheep? Like, you'd be a rich person. If you had a 100 sheep, you'd be rich. And if you were rich, there's no possible way you'd bother looking for one sheep. Like, if you even cared, you'd hire a common person lower on the social strata to do the dirty work. Like, you'd never see a dignified person wearing royal robes like a scribe or a Pharisee, traipsing out in the pasture somewhere looking for one lost, dumb, lonely sheep as if this one stupid sheep mattered to these people because it didn't matter. And even if I did want that sheep found? I'd send you. I ain't going. So when Jesus says here, what man among you wouldn't go looking? <laughs> the answer was, really? <clears throat> like, pff, ha, ha, the answer is none of them would do it. None of them. And they knew it. And I think they knew right away here exactly what Jesus meant when he told this story of a cute little lamb. It wasn't a bedtime story for them. It actually ticked them off even more until eventually they figured out how to kill Jesus <laughs> I read some of these confrontations that Jesus did and I'm kind of like hey does somebody want to go out and get Jesus a copy of the book how to win friends and influence people like <laughs> okay. oh, yeah so the confrontation's going on and in verse 5 Jesus says the shepherd did find the sheep he laid it on his shoulders he's rejoicing like there's actual rejoicing he's not just ticked about it even though there's a lot of work going on to carry that thing home because sheep, when they lay down, they won't budge. you got to carry them. And isn't that just like Jesus? <laughs> he picks it up and carries it. And Jesus is saying in this story, I'm not ashamed to do the work Of a lowly shepherd. It is not beneath me to remove my royal robes and go stomping through the mud. And then he brings the sheep home as he calls his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, get happy because I found my sheep that was lost. So, what kind of God is God? He's that kind of God. And so, yes, says Jesus, yes, I will do the dirty work, and no, I won't despise it, and yes, I'll receive sinners and outsiders and befriend them and eat with them as well. And I know, I know, I think Jesus would say, I know it confuses and bothers and angers you, scribes and Pharisees, but I got to tell you, what confuses and bothers and angers me is that you don't. Because there's more joy over one sinner who repents, and that word simply means to turn, right, to come back home. More joy over that than there is over 99 people who never need repentance, or since we all do, they think they don't. Friends, hear me. I think that the reason that people like this, like the Pharisees, don't get grace is because they don't know they need it. Which, by the way, happens to me. Like I forget, right, I forget. And then without taking a breath, after that first story there, Jesus turns his attention to a story about a woman who had 10 coins. Now everybody would have likely understood that this was probably her life savings that was gonna provide for her for the rest of her life and she loses one of those coins. So the coin is lost and Jesus asks the same question, what woman wouldn't do this? And again, little interesting side note here, because in each of these stories, um, God's, he's talking about what God is like, you know. Jesus identifies with the shepherd in the first one, and in this story, he's the woman, which you talk about like a radical viewpoint that would have been unheard of in those days, like just, just saying, okay, back to the story here, okay. Um, this woman realizes one of her ten coins is missing, and she's so frantic about it that that, she says, uh, that Jesus says she lights her lamp in the middle of the day. She's using precious oil that costs money, and she frantically sweeps her house and looks carefully until she finds the coin. And again, twice he uses the word joy to describe what she experiences and how she invites her neighbors to come over and celebrate with her. She's saying, good news, good news, everybody. You can rejoice, be happy with me. I found the coin. And when Jesus tells the story, he's being a little sarcastic again toward these insider religious dudes. What woman among you, he's asking, <laughs> right? These, these men had no respect for women, zero. And scribes and Pharisees, they were so wealthy that a lost coin wouldn't have mattered much to them. And a peasant woman's desperate search would have been no big deal. They had more important things to worry about. So what kind of God is God? Turns out from what Jesus says here, that he's like a royal shepherd who took off his royal robes to go stomping through the mud after a stupid lamb that had lost its way. That kind of work is not beneath him. And it turns out that, that, that he's like a crazy woman who would move heaven and earth to find something or someone that most others would find little value in. And maybe Jesus would say, and that is why I accept and befriend sinners, and I eat with them too, treating them as equals. So Jesus is saying to the religious people there, I know, I know, I know the fact that I do this, confuses and bothers and angers you scribes and Pharisees, but I got to tell you, what confuses and bothers and angers me is you don't. You, you don't value lost people and lost sheep and rejoice when they are found. That you don't love imperfect people. So don't tell me that you know God, because when you act like that, you look nothing like the heart of God. Still think it's a cute little bedtime story. <laughs> A uh, little side note here about um, lost sheep and lost coins here. Um, first the sheep because uh, like when sheep, when sheep get lost, it's not because they're rebellious or angry. They're like, I hate you, right? That's my sheep impersonation. Thank you very much. Um, the son in the third story, by the way, he's the so-called prodigal son, he, you know, he's like that a little bit, you know. And interestingly, in that story, the father doesn't pursue him. He lets him go. But, but the sheep, anyway, the sheep. See, when sheep get lost, they just wander, right? They get distracted. Maybe they pick up the smell of something and they start, right, something good over that way. You know, it's, it's usually not like they're saying, I'm leaving home, I hate God, I'm out of here, no, 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 I, I love God. I never mean to leave God, but oh, oh, that, that smells good. And off we go. Seriously, um, that's how sheep get lost. That's how sheep get lost. That's how sheep get.